Welcome back, Neurohacker community, to our podcast, where we voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Today, I'd like to introduce a new regular host on our show, Jamie Wheel. He is executive director of the Flow Genome Project and author of the Pulitzer-nominated global bestseller, Stealing Fire. He's an expert on peak performance and leadership, specializing in the neuroscience and application of flow states. Welcome to Collective Insights. Hi, I'm Jamie and welcome to Homegrown Humans. Uh, Homegrown Humans is an intentional podcast that seeks to kind of break the mold a little bit on the way these kinds of dialogues have been taking place over the last few years, which is sort of long form interactive, often people promoting a book or having a conversation that sort of starts anywhere and goes everywhere. Um, and really for, for us, the, the thing that really put the cherry on top of what we wanted to do with this series was a few years ago when Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson had a public debate on stage about the nature of reality and consciousness. And they both dug into their positions and they really wouldn't budge. And I think that most of the audience was actually rooting for them to come to a synthesis beyond their antithesis. And, and I think that's what we've really been shooting for in choosing the guests and choosing the kind of dialogues we want to have here on Homegrown Humans, which is not so much the new atheists who are looking to tear down old systems or old straw men arguments from the past, but more like the new Platonists. You know, what is it like to have people that are well-versed in reason and logic and evidence, but also have their kind of their eye on the mystery that have had in their own lives or in their own reading and careers, some glimpse of capital and more. And that hopefully that's come around to inform their perspective within their field of expertise and what they have, what they hold as both the liabilities and the possibilities for us going forwards. So in this series, we're really kind of focusing in a specific but pretty broad lane. And that is the intersection of neuroanthropology and culture architecture. And neuroanthropology might not be a, a term you've heard of, but I'm pretty sure you've probably been coming across it. If you're familiar with Pulitzer Prize winning Guns, Gems and Steel by the anthropologist Jared Diamond, or more recently Yuval Harari's Sapiens or Homo Deus, that's the general neck of the woods of neuroanthropology. It's taking optimal psychology, neuroscience and historical analysis, and really using it to kind of get under the hood of culture and to use all of the tools that we have from the sciences, the hard sciences and the social sciences to get a better understanding of what makes us tick. Why do we do the things we do? Why do we build the institutions and the customs that we do? And then what insights does that give us for the human condition? And then culture architecture is really the same exact inquiry, just instead of looking backwards into the past, culture architecture points it forwards into the future. So if you read and enjoyed uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, or Richard Thaler, the Nobel Prize-winning economist book, Nudge, about how do we do these crazy things that, that humans need to do, and how do we hopefully put our thumb on the scale of goodness, truth, and beauty, that we can actually create more of those things in our life. That's the realm of culture architecture. And we put those together, and that really kind of boils down to the central inquiry of homegrown humans, which is how do we stop seeking and stop searching and stop thrashing around, making a mess behind us? And how do we actually come to fully embrace this human experience? Because on the one hand, it's as simple and the same as it ever was. And on the other hand, we can have the most 
transcendent and transformative experiences, only to realize, like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, that there's no place like home. So when we say that, when we say this is the inquiry for homegrown humans, it's really kind of answer the questions of where have we come from? Where are we going? And what do we do now? So please join us in this inquiry. We have an amazing series of guests that we've really chosen sort of leaders on thought leaders and leaders uh, on the world stage and in the realms of ideas that really represent this kind of intersection of disciplines and this kind of humble curious inquiry into that very question of what do we do now and our first guest sue phillips is a graduate of harvard divinity school she was one of the co-founders of the how we gather project which was a non-denominational inquiry into millennial modes and methods of worship and also one of the co-founders of the sacred design lab and in this clip she we, she and i are just exploring what is the nature of praise and worship these days and how are millennials particularly as a cohort generation and, and gen z behind them how are they gathering and there's a sort of unbundling of religious tools services and methods so where maybe in the past you would go to a church or you would go to a synagogue and people would sort of have, they would take it all lock, stock and barrel. Like this, this is what I get for being a member of this community. Millennials are effectively unbundling goods and services. They're the sort of cable cutters of faith these days. And they're choosing their own apps. They're choosing their own experiences. They're choosing their own streaming on demand experiences. And something that Sue points out that I think is fascinating is the difference between transformational ecstatic festivals and whether that's EDM music, whether that's daytime dance jams, whatever, you know, the sort of marketplace of spirituality these days. On the one hand, it's providing access to really fast, high octane, high intensity ecstatic experiences. But Sue's point of view is that it's also missing something essential and critical from the traditional face, which is the sort of slow, steady burn of transformation over time. Transformation not by me seeking experiences, but potentially by me being a part of a community, part of service to something larger. So check it out. Sue is an absolute sweetheart, and our conversation ranges far and wide from the 17th century and the settling of the Puritans to Burning Men and festival culture to the uh, origins of faith in America and, and, and everything in between. But it's a, it's a delightful conversation, and, and uh, I hope you get some, something useful from it in your own reflections on faith and belief in a time where it sure feels like we need, need more. So what we have, I think, is a bunch of youngsters, you know, out from under the thumbs of the, their elders, seeking what they would normally call, you know, sacred experiences in highly secular environments, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and with, with, with the sort of the transformational festival scene, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you mm -hmm. see Either, well, how do you contextualize those experiences in your own realm, and or is there a fold to bring those folks back under, or do we need mm -hmm. to stretch the tent even bigger to include that kind of experiential, non-denominational seeking? Yes, what a good question, and way to drop a whole range of theologians across the centuries to serve the question, first of all, we speak the same language. Well, for one thing, to connect it to the demographic shifts you mentioned at the very beginning, one of the things we've noticed over and over again is that millennials and Gen Zers are very comfortable unbundling and remixing those religious jobs. So instead of a one-stop shop like your local temple 
where they would get a whole suite of services um, and experiences meant to um, appeal to all sorts of senses and um, ways of knowing, you know, epistemic approaches and um, experiential ones. Uh, folks are really kind of grabbing their longing for certain kinds of experiences, like experience of community, going deeper into oneself, for contemplation, for embodied experience. They tend to be going to a lot of different places and then remixing them for their personal use. So I think you're really noting something important at the trend towards pers personalization, frankly. But of course, there are downsides to that, which we also see in terms of, uh, you know, first of all, having to craft one's own bespoke personal, spiritual, and religious life is difficult, burdensome. And so many people are just bereft from the pathways that used to teach us how to do that. That's what tradition does. There are just pathways laid by other humans to uncover sort of spiritual practices that make for a meaningful, flourishing human life. So on the one hand, you've got like generations that are increasingly bereft of those pathways, needing or wanting or longing to sort of create their own, but wondering where to go find them. So it doesn't surprise me at all that we're seeing um, a trend towards sort of immersive, intense experiences that are like this uh, one-off blast off into sort of altered states and ecstatic experiences, partly because that is what people know to um, to recognize as a spiritual experience. I think part of what gets lost in all that, Jamie, is that spiritual practices really are meant to be slow burns. They're not meant to induce, I mean, broadly speaking, not meant to induce an immediate altered state. That's part of why we call them practices, <laughs> because their value accretes over time. And it's in the... Um, the the intentional return to ongoing practices in community that I mean most of the religious world would claim is part of the recipe for that fulfilling life. So on the one hand, we've got we understand why people are are seeking experiences like that, but I would like to place it in the context of loss that it's not embedded in a more fulsome um, uh, environment replete with a wider range of opportunities to grow one's soul over time. Our next guest is Eric Davis, who is one of my all-time favorite scholar, participant observer scholars in the kind of countercultural scene. He went to Yale as an undergrad. He did his doctoral work at Rice, studying under Jeffrey Kripal, who's one of the probably more progressive, wild and wacky religious studies departments on the planet as far as high octane, rigorous scholarship, but also profound curiosity. I mean, comic books, mythology, mysticism, all sorts of things. And Eric famously wrote the book Technosis, as well as the more recent High Weirdness, which was an assessment of 70s esoterica, including Philip K. Dick, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, and Terence McKenna. And in mine and Eric's conversation, again, vast, free-ranging, covering everything from the 1960s West Coast counterculture to the origins of the Grateful Dead to contemporary transformational culture and potentially some of the things that can get missed when everyone is just chasing the pretty lights. And from Eric's perspective, one of the key things that might be absent from contemporary electronica, psychedelic renaissance, all these sort of movements is a relationship to death. 
a relationship to the human experience as it truly connects to that sort of unknowable ultimate mystery and paradoxically how profoundly grounding settling and inspiring deliberately cultivating that relationship with the unknowable with the ineffable can be so again he is one of my all-time favorites as far as somebody who has been a participant observer in this culture he has been riding the raggedy edge of scenes observing watching and also cataloging them with uh, academic robustness and intellectual rigor but also having lived it from the inside out so he's not merely a sort of a, a naturalist with a butterfly net he's actually flying through the jungle himself and it's an absolute delight to follow him on his flights of fancy if you're really paying attention then you know that the reason you don't know is not just that because the the light is unclear or because you didn't get the full download or whatever the other kinds of reasons you might say. The reason you don't know is because you're going to die and nobody is going to wrap their heads around death. You can't do it. It's impossible. You can't conceive of your own death. You don't know what it means. Any religious person who tells you, well, this has what happens when you die. When you die, you go into this other. No. Well, how do you know? You don't know. Nobody knows. So the nobody knows around death is a very stern liberator. It liberates you from bullshit. It liberates you from the need or belief that you can ultimately know. And it also brings you back to the collective celebration of here we are, you know, on this darkling plane. And rather than fighting like confused armies, let's dance. Yes. You know? Yes. It's that, that Alice Walker line of like hard times call for furious dancing. Our next guest is a dear friend and probably one of the more open-hearted and thoughtful neuroscientists I know, Adam Ghazali, uh, a, the head of a research lab at the University of California, San Francisco, a serial entrepreneur and the founder of the research and experience lab called SenseSync. And among a gajillion things, including publishing in Science and Nature and the top peer-reviewed journals uh, in the world, Adam has actually also been actively standing up and driving the experimentation of immersive experiences as effectively as prescription pharmaceuticals. And recently the FDA has just uh, approved some of his video games designed to aid and ameliorate ADD. So while you might have seen apps and VR headsets and all kinds of things promising to cure this and that, but they're not really allowed to, they're just kind of saying it for marketing. Adam's lab took the long, slow route and over a decade ago really started marching through those gates so that what they've created is now evidence-based and validated and able to really help children who are suffering without having to medicate. And even more interestingly, at least from our perspective, he has taken a, he's created SenseSync, which looks like a Mork from Orc space pod. And it's a complete VR, AR, immersory experience with vibroacoustic sound, with pivoting, um, seating, sort of astronaut seating with all factory smells, with wind, with all sorts of things that can actually trick our brains into having experiences in immersive worlds that actually are completely decoupled from what our body's doing in real time. And while 
quarantine changed his appointment. He was to be speaking and, and debuting this on the TED main stage this past spring, which is he's now, his lab is now introducing psychedelic therapies in conjunction with full multi-sensory immersive experience. So dive into this one. Uh, Adam, as I said, is a true sweetheart, a, a tender-hearted human, and really incredibly well-intentioned, doing great work on behalf of everybody. And then also really pioneering ways to combine technology and humanity in terms of a practical actionable thing to do as opposed to something more philosophical is that experience changes the brain and it's not anything that is mind-blowing to say although it took us a long time as a neuroscientific community to really understand that was true and to understand that it occurs throughout our lives and understand the parameters and the molecular mechanisms that uh, allow that to happen but if you just start with that premise that experience changes the brain then to me it seems that there is an entire largely unexplored domain of potential therapeutic approaches that can be designed and then validated that allow targeted experiences. So again, it's about the brain interaction with the environment experiences, sort of the, the child of that to allow us to improve function. Another of our guests is probably well known to many of you. And we just mentioned his brother when I was talking about Eric Davis's book, High Weirdness, but this is Dennis McKenna, the younger brother of the psychedelic bard and trickster Terence. And Dennis is a professor of ethnobotany at the University of British Columbia and is a scientist who nonetheless had his early experiences tromping around the jungles of the Amazon um, pursuing esoteric psychoactive plants. And then his academic career has really been saying, well, let's put the rubber to the road on those experiences. Let's really understand what is happening at a neurochemical and a molecular level and really kind of understand the, the metrics behind the magic. And in this conversation with Dennis, again, far ranging, a ton of fun. Uh, and he really kind of drew out an interesting point, which is that if you're following optimal psychology these days, if you kind of keep up on neuroscience blogs or anything like that, you might've heard of the default mode network. And the default mode network is kind of where we go when we're not actively thinking other things. So it's effectively the default of where we daydream, where we ruminate and those kind of things. And he actually introduces a different term that he had been working with for a long time, which was a sort of reality hallucination. The idea that we sort of construct the world that we can manage uh, and that that becomes effectively true for us but also a hallucination. It is an intentional or even just an, um, an intuitive selection and winnowing down of the informational vastness that we could experience down into something manageable. And that in that choosing, we are actually selecting for some things and deselecting for others. And he calls that sensory gating, which if you remember back, that might ring a bell from Aldous Huxley, and his famous Doors of Perception. It goes back to Henri Bergson and this idea that between our cortex and our thalamus is a pile of information and that some different states, different practices, even different compounds and molecules can open or close that aperture and give us access to more or less information, both about our regular waking world and around non-ordinary states that as William James said, are often separated by only the flimsiest of veils. In some sense, you could say everything is neurochemistry because 
we do not have an experience that is not filtered through our sensory receptors and then processed internally with associations and so on so that we create this model of reality this this is also called these days the 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 trendy term is uh the default mode network but i i i used to call it the and i still do i i like it better i call it the reality hallucination reality it's a hallucination we don't live we we never experience raw reality physics if we believe our instruments which again come through these sensory portals and all that but if you believe our instruments physics says reality looks nothing like this you know it's not solid we're not you know none of this is this is a hallucination that our brains construct for our convenience mostly so that we can comprehend the what's going on you know if 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 we had to process all the information that's coming into us and then being processed it we would just be it would just be a blooming buzzing confusion we couldn't make sense of it building the reality hallucination or the default mode network is a lot about what it excludes you know there is this process called sensory gating the brain is programmed so, so that's the that's the Henri Henri Bergson original like the one that Huxley picked up for the doors of exactly, perception kind of exactly. the cortico corticothalamic Huxley gating, is right? the first one to articulate well, Henry Bergson but right Huxley articulated it and this is you know I think this is a good model I think that this is uh, oh, you do okay so interesting so way back when that was the provisional and it's bearing the test of time and updated research yeah yeah it is and uh, so a lot of what the reality hallucination is is this ability of the brain to take this chaotic uh, input of information process it and uh, you know combine it with internal processing which may be memories or you know associations or you know just the raw muck of experience if you will out of which you construct a more or less coherent model of of your experience of being in the world it's like you're the producer director and star of your own movie you know you're telling yourself the story even as you live the story so that's an introduction to homegrown humans it's basically that sense of how do we comprehend the vastness the complexity the pain the possibility of our current experience as humans and how do we come together to find solutions that work for all of us this is a chance to move beyond finite games of win-lose and into infinite games where it's the, the intention isn't to end it the intention is to expand that game and invite as many people to play as we possibly can so if you're interested in this conversation please dive in enjoy these conversations as much as we have uh, sign up and subscribe on the podcast platform that you listen to. Uh, if you'd like to, we're, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Stealing Fire, which was basically framing up this space. We're just about to come out with the sequel to it, which is the companion to this podcast series called Recapture the Rapture. So feel free to check that out as well. It unpacks this story and these frameworks in much more detail, features a number of the people that we are 
honored to have on the Homegrown Humans podcast and in general uh, takes our level best shot at how do we all wake up, grow up, and show up in a world that's lost its mind. Thanks very much, everybody. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Jamie Wheel and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.